Kate went dumpster diving for a box yesterday because everything is for purchase. So she she found a cardboard box for us. The guy, he was like a scene from freaking The Simpsons. Like I pulled the box out and for real, literally four seconds later, some dude in a little a little electric cart came by and picked up the whole thing on a forklift and took the boxes away. The dumpster of boxes. <laughs> Somebody else was like, man, where'd you get that box? And I was like, it's gone, man. It's $20 gone. for a year. <laughs> I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is effing Shakespeare by writers for writers all right okay so this is day two of AWP let's do a let's do a recap do you remember yesterday we saw that couple I saw that couple and they talked about being club poets yes the young couple yeah that was like the alpha right and then the omega was the second couple yes that had obviously been partnered for a long time yes and we decided that when you're young and in love you need to seek to find the people who put your life in context in ways that you can't see and when you're older you have to remind (laughs) your partner of what context they belong to yes to buy a book and he was super nice and very generous and was hanging out talking about Vietnam War poetry and then his wife came up and was like I told you about that you know this guy don't you remember that Jesus Tom <laughs> and that was, that was that's what I learned from AWP yesterday that's it. yeah how we love so yes, this is day two of AWP 2019. It seems like day 30 <laughs> for me already. <laughs> we met someone at nine and asked her to come back to be on the show. And when she showed up at like one, I swear to God, 30 days had passed. She's like, hey, I met you. I met you uh, last month. She's like, no, that was nine this morning. Oh, shit. Hi. That's so strange. Did you see that my message was, like, four minutes long, but I wasn't even talking? Your message was four minutes long? Oh, my God. I was calling you the same time. I know, and I couldn't even get to it. My phone just decided to completely act up. It was very hilarious. Um. Anyway, um, then, I, then I texted you, and then it like let me call. Um, we're um, we're podcasting live. Your your sweet voice is is uh, being recorded right now. It's awesome. I wish you were here, though. I know. I'm pretty sure it was MLA that I sort of wandered around, totally lost and feeling useless. I can't imagine going that way at AWP, even by myself. 
Oh no, I think it's possible to feel that way here. I'm great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Can you tell us uh, tell us who you are and a little bit about yourself? For sure. Um, thanks for having me. I just yeah. wandered by your booth. It was so cool. Yeah. Um, I'm a writer of fiction and nonfiction, um, and I'm from Vancouver, Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just came down for AWP this weekend. Um, uh, my work, it sort of spans broadly, uh, but is mostly about storytelling, but also about women. And I do, I've done a lot of arts journalism yeah. and, uh, and radio. I love doing radio. That's awesome. That's yeah. why you wandered over the table. Yeah, I, I, was, I saw, I was drawn by the siren call of microphones. That happens a lot when we set these things up. That's they are awesome. a certain kind of beacon that hails a, a, a certain kind of person. And they're generally people that we really like. Yeah. So thanks for stopping by. <laughs> so cool. It's a really cool cross-section that what we do when we kind of pull people off the streets is we find just, you know, very different people who are attending um, the conference for different reasons. And you're here um, at the Room Magazine table? Yeah, I'm um, I'm here with Room Magazine, which is a, a, a magazine that publishes women and non-binary folks. Um, it's out of Vancouver. Uh, it's been around for decades. I actually, I don't know how long, but yeah, it, it's awesome. a wonderful... Um, a wonderful uh, literary magazine. Uh, they just finished doing uh, the Growing Room Festival, which is a women's uh, a festival of women's writing. Oh, cool! And in uh, Vancouver. In Vancouver, yeah. It was this this year. It was their third year, and it was a week long festival of just women and non-binary folk uh, coming out and talking about writing and about like ideas around writing. And it, every year, it has been it's been so invigorating and exciting and there are people from all across Canada that come and oh man that's awesome it's really great so you're telling me that what we Americans are envious of with you Canadians is actually true that things are going well and (laughs) there's space for those those folks and and well, we, you know, it's Are up you and down. Are going to burst the bubble? I don't know. Okay. I mean, I don't know if you've been following <laughs> okay. the news about our prime minister yes. and the... Uh, um, a, yeah. a little. I did, yeah, I did hear the unfortunate press conference and then the ensuing apologies that happened <sighs> over and over again. It's been nonstop. And, and you know, uh, we... Canada doesn't do very well on certain things, uh, particularly around Indigenous rights. Right and indigenous land claims so that's something that i think when people think about canada's like as this as this like utopian wonderland they they sort of don't realize that we suffer from a lot of the same problems that the us suffers about from we just we're smaller and we don't talk about it as much or yeah. it doesn't reach beyond our borders these conversations don't reach beyond our borders as much but there is a wonderful writer named alicia alicia elliot mm-hmm. who's around here somewhere she did a panel yesterday about Indigenous writing, and um, she has a book uh, out called uh, "Mind Spread Out on the Ground." That is is fantastic. Oh, There's nice. we have so much great, um, some of the greatest writing coming out of Canada right now is from Indigenous authors who are sort of taking hold of Canadian literature and pulling it in a direction uh, that is exciting and and energizing and political and dark and funny. Uh, Eden Robinson, also around here somewhere. Um, I was I was uh, listening to an audiobook of a, a call of a book called *The Break* by Katerina Vermitt, 
who, uh, which is a book set in Winnipeg, um, and yeah, so That's many fantastic. amazing writers. Yeah, I love that they're here too, and that there's room um, for them to speak to that. It does, it does feel overwhelming to kind of find find those people while you're here because there's just so much stuff to see. I yeah. mean, I mean, you were talking about Carmen Maria Machado. <gasps> so excited. Yeah, and and you know someone was in earlier today speaking about her plan for the weekend and how she came in and it was like all shot to hell <laughs> within like the first 30 minutes because it, you, then you meet somebody new which is great you know I, I just we're out here encouraging people to continue to go seek out new voices and find you know find things that they haven't heard before so I'm so excited to have those names yeah we'll link to them in the podcast that people can find in the podcast notes so people can find their way to them yeah. am I crazy is Claudia Day Canadian as well uh I don't know okay I feel like I should hers was one of my favorite books of um 2018 what was her book called uh Heartbreaker mm, I don't know yeah. Um, it's fantastic. <laughs> You'd think uh, that we would have this list, like we're supposed to, yeah, culturally, right. have this list of who is Canadian. Yeah. Then, <laughs> like anytime you talk about Other a Hollywood than actor, Justin Bieber, Justin and, Bieber yeah. Michael J. Fox, yeah. you know, the, the yeah. list. But you don't have to be the representative oh, I try. of the entire country. I'm not very That's prepared. That's a lot to ask. <laughs> that is a lot to ask. So the festival was called Growing Room, mm -hmm. with the idea that there is still room for exactly. for us to work harder and do better. Yeah, 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 that's great. Okay, so where can people find your work? Um, I have a website, okay. um, EricaTharkelson.com. Um, Erica with a K. Yeah, so E R I K A, and right. then Tharkelson is T H O R K E L S O N. Okay. Com, or you can just Google Erica Tharkelson. I'm like the only one. <laughs> That's convenient. It is convenient. Nice. I mean, there's one other, and I've tried to talk to her, but she won't respond. Oh, that's unfortunate. In the world. Just you and the other one. Yeah. Is she a K as well? Uh, yes. You're a K. Wow. Yeah, I know. That's strange. Not many Icelanders. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about your some of your journalism? You were talking before you got on the mics about, uh, about your piece about lipstick. I want to hear about it. Yeah, so that was, um, I guess, the largest piece that I've published recently. Uh, it was uh, in The Walrus, which is a national magazine in Canada, and it was looking at the way that uh, lipstick has sort of been historically maligned as a, as, um, a, as, as a marker of some kind of like dangerous femininity, um, and how I've come to appreciate it as uh, as a way to express um, like a radical femininity, um, and like how how it took it took me a while to get there because I didn't come from a place where I knew a lot about cosmetics, um, but also the history of lipstick is fascinating. Mm. Like thinking about it, it began it it began in like ancient Sumer, and uh, over time it's been. Um, legally controlled in different ways that are really interesting like uh, um, it, I think it was the 17th century it was it was uh, if you used it you were considered a witch oh, wow. um, and for many reasons like it, it had to do with like the mixing of the of the chemicals that were used to make it but also um, you were treated as though you were uh, tricking men into falling in love with you by pretending that you were younger than you are oh, or wow. more fertile than you are yeah 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 that's really fascinating mm. um i had we ha our co-host jessica who's in boston but couldn't join us this weekend um 
I met her in grad school and she always wore the most beautiful orange red lipstick um, she has this gorgeous black curly hair and and I never I didn't even know her but I knew of her and that she always wore this red lipstick and and I think it's, you know like this is my vulnerable confession but I think that I never I was like well I could never do something like that you know it's something that some it's somebody else's thing and so it would be like copying or or it's not you know it's somehow not for me yeah but then you once you change your way of thinking about it you know and I recognize it in her and love it in her and I'm happy to wear you know whatever color I want as well um, but it was it was like a why, why do I feel that way let's unpack what this means you yeah know? It's I, really great. I mean I talk about it in the article it's a it's a personal essay um, and I, I talk about how I, I felt early on that lipstick and makeup was being very carefully controlled, like the way I was allowed to wear lipstick was controlled, mm. and so it became this like intense point of anxiety for me, um, and I think a lot of people feel that way, sure. um, and one of the cool things that's happened since I published this essay is people have come up to me, men, women, non-binary folks have come up to me and been like, I'm going to go experiment with lipstick yes. now, I'm just going to go see yes. what I can get away with, like, yes. is it? Like, it could be blue, you know? Right. I wear, right. I wear blue lipstick to teach. I teach at Emily Carr University of Art and Design in Vancouver, and I wore nice. blue lipstick on Halloween. Uh -huh. So it was like, I'm, this is how I'm getting away with it. Uh -huh. My students loved it. Yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think finally knowing Jessica, it was like, and probably this is what your readers felt too, it was like permission yeah. to wear it for me. Yeah. I think I had already conceived, always conceived of it as somehow it was either worn by people who were trying too hard yeah. and I didn't want to be perceived in that way um, or it was sort of attracting, it, or it was for like to attract others. You yeah. know? And Jessica and, and it sounds like what you're saying is like, this is for you. Yeah, this absolutely. This is what makes you feel good. Absolutely. You know? And I mean, that's worthy. My the best thing that came out of it was my stepsister texted me after she read it and, and said that she started wearing the color of lipstick that I mentioned in the article and she's like, you know, she's a mom and she uh -huh. she she works incredibly hard. She's like an incredibly like straightforward person and uh, she she was celebrating herself yeah. in a way that she'd never really done before, which was really cool. Cool. Yeah, my next thing is about nails. Because so. <laughs> actually, nail polish is a lot easier to keep on uh, yes. for long periods of time. Then the lipstick comes off. Flying. Yes, yeah. Erica has hot pink nails with some um, stars, star designs on. Yeah. So I look forward to that piece, and I can't. I'm so grateful for you directing us to your other work. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much. It was so nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. Ground control. It's Major Tom. Boo, can you hear me? <laughs> Sorry, I don't That's know why. That's a great song. Channeling David Listen, Bowie. We, we, could, we could talk about that song for some time. Uh, and in talking about the song, that means we can use a clip of oh, the Oh, I just have to say, <laughs> it's a, uh, what's that called? Um, oh my God. Fair use? Yeah, it is fair use. Once we comment upon it. Do you have a comment? Do you have a comment on David Bowie? I, I don't. No, you have to. I, you I am, have to. You, I am, you okay. write reviews. My, my comment on David Bowie is that I literally know one song of David Bowie's, and I'm woefully ill-prepared to speak on him. 
Hey, so uh, this is Gary uh, McDowell. And uh, we just started chatting because he came by. This is a funny story. I was reading a book that he blurred, and he said, hey, that's a good book. And when you're at AWP, you really don't know who's walking around. And then I was like, oh, shit, is this the author? Like, should I know that it's him? And it wasn't the author, but it, it was still a little embarrassing because he did blurb the book. But that's okay. And now, now we're speaking about it. It just means that both of us have good taste. That's right. I think is what that means. Aww, that's generous. I'll take that. Okay. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what you're doing here at AWP and uh, what you do. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm a professor at Belmont University in Nashville. And I'm a poet and an essayist. And uh, so I'm just hanging out, looking at friends, meeting people. That's great. Checking in with the presses that have been gracious enough to put out my work. And That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so and fun. you were talking about uh, Rose Metal Press, yes? Yeah, Rose Metal Press put out, uh, almost 10 years ago now, an anthology on the prose poem that I edited with a good friend, Dan Resnick. And, uh, yeah, it's an exciting book. It's, uh, it features craft essays on prose poetry and then an accompanying poem or two by each each of those writers. Um, they uh, also have a flash guide to, or uh, a field guide to flash fiction and, and short form nonfiction. So uh, it's, a, it's a really neat press. They do a lot of hybrid work and, and that's fantastic. We love to hear about uh, new or presses out there who are doing different things, and, and there's a plethora of them here. So, yeah, uh, check check Rose Metal Press out. Um, my co-host, who's not here, uh, but but so Fu and I host the show, and then my co-host Jessica is in Boston, but she and I went to school in Knoxville, oh, where we got our creative writing degree. Okay. So tell me about the essays that you write. I write lyric essays. Oh, cool. I have, I have a book called Seishura. Oh, nice. Poetic term, yeah. Yeah. Uh, out on Otis Books, okay. Seismicity Editions, out of LA, and, and they're here. And um, LA yeah, has a so. gajillion indie presses. Yeah, they're, they're doing good. they're doing lots of good work out there. Indie presses and indie music labels, yeah. and all that good stuff. Right. Uh, but yeah, they're they're lyric essays, so they're I'm a I'm a poet by by training and by trade, but um, and I started writing these things that just kept getting longer and longer and longer. And uh, at the same time, I was reading Leah Perpera's work, uh-huh. who writes a similar kind of, uh, by no means my comparing my essays to hers, but a similar kind of exploratory, meditative, very fractured and dissociative, disjunctive kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, yeah, I just fell in love with that form, and then it turned out I had some things to say, and but they weren't memoristic, and so this this kind of fragmented, exploratory, experimental essay form really felt good. Right. Uh, so the collection is it's about my life, but it's also about running. It's about um, magic. I, I perform magic for years and years and years. And so it's, it's got, it has some narrative to it, but mostly it was a, a place to just further explore those poetic, uh, longer poetic forms. That's such a kismet moment when you find... You know, you know, you have these ideas, but you find the form that fits them. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like the last puzzle piece, and then you just kind of take off. That's really great. Yeah, it's that idea. It's, it's not exactly, I guess, but um, Denise Levertov's idea of organic form. You know, that, that it ideally, ideally, form and content are sort of uh, equal, and, and one one is the other. And so once you find that place where the thing kind of locks, the form and the function work and, and reciprocity so right yeah. yeah yeah and then how did you find your way to Otis is that the name of the that LA is, press yeah good yeah um well I uh, had loved their books they, they do a, a series the, the, basically every book they do is the same it's a black cover 
and then there's they choose a different color for the for the font of the name and the title and it's a black it's a very beautiful kind of sleek I love design it. Yeah. yeah and so they're very recognizable and I had read uh, Eric Anderson has a book uh, on that press I think it's called uh, I think it's called Estranger or my French is terrible if uh, Jessica were here she would correct us. oh Paul Francais un peu but uh, he, and I loved that book. It was all about sort of um, exploring the city, and it's very lyric and kind of heady. And, and so I always kind of knew in the back of my mind that that might be a place. And uh, I set the manuscript out to a couple of contests and did fairly well, and was encouraged by that. And then thought, well, I'm gonna try Otis. And then within just a couple of weeks, they they wrote and said they were interested. And it was That's it was great. really nice. Yeah. And then you guys had a good editorial relationship. Yeah, that? you know, it was it wasn't. I wouldn't call it tremendously hands-on, but they were very good about. Um, about letting me sort of shape the book and offering suggestions but not being heavy-handed and um, yeah it was an easy relationship they're very nice to work with um, being in LA they have a pretty good network out there where they get the book out and um, picked up just a, just a couple of reviews but I've, I've really enjoyed working with them beyond that it's not that's not the important part right the yeah part is, is the work but but it was nice it was a good relationship very cool. Well, can you tell us where to find more of your stuff? Absolutely, yeah. I've, I've actually, uh, my latest book of poetry came out in 2016 called Mysteries in a World That Thinks There Are None. And, uh, that actually is a local, great uh, title. Thank you, yeah. thank you. Uh, and actually a, a local Portland press here, Burnside Review Press, uh, oh, cool. did that book. It won their book award back oh, fantastic. in the 2014. Yeah. And, uh, and they're here at the, at the conference and um, they make kind of similar smaller books uh-huh. Um, but their design is kind of consistent. I like the I like the aesthetic of the press. Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm there, and I've got I've got two other books on Dreamhorse Press, and you can you can Google me, I guess. I, <laughs> I have poems on the interwebs, uh, if you really if you really want to. Um, so yeah, so that's cool. me, and I'm on I'm on Twitter at poet writes novel. Oh, there you go. So, yeah, we'll that's follow, my next We'll adventure. link to that so, uh, yeah. in the episode notes. Oh, cool. Yeah. Gary, it's really good to know you. Thanks yeah, for stopping yeah. by. Okay, thank you so much. bangs again I've I just had have them these... my whole life really <laughs> so. because I secretly have a huge forehead <laughs> what did you say she she says I have a huge forehead so I have to have bangs oh maybe I need some bangs no <laughs> <laughs> no I've had them since I was a little girl I only had uh, like a two-year period of adolescence where I did not have bangs and then you're like that's wrong I'm that not was a doing low that point. that's a low point I had a lot of low hair points <laughs> during adolescence yeah yeah it was like so there was this girl in my fifth grade class Kathleen White who had great like you remember the double bang thing I don't know how old you are but we did the like you rolled one down and then you rolled one up oh we remember the exact same age and then you used the aquina and like oh yeah it was so bizarre. And she she did it every morning and she always looked fabulous. But I didn't have bangs. And so I cut bangs myself and then tried to recreate the double bang roll without any knowledge. Like I believe that other girls were born with some sort of genetic understanding of how to do those things that I didn't get. And it was just a disaster. So Kathleen White, wherever you are, fuck you and your bangs. No, I'm sorry. I am so excited. I have Kate Hope Day on the podcast at AWP. She was like two tables down. 
and I spotted her, I follow her on Twitter, and now she's here in front of me. I'm here. You're like the unicorn, but you <laughs> exist right here. It's me from the internet. <laughs> That's sort of what I said. I was like, okay, I know you, but I don't really know you, and you don't know me. I know, it's weird how you feel. Like, you see someone across the room, and you're like, I know that person, but I don't actually yeah there's AWP is rife with those sort of awkward exchanges I did that I I said hello in a very familiar way to somebody and she was like oh it's so good to see you but I could see the fear in her eyes because she didn't know who I was and I was like no so good to see you that one yes (laughs) I was like no I I actually don't know you I want to know you but don't feel compelled to have to remember who I am let's just do this over it happened a yes. hundred times. Yes. It happened um, over and over and over. Um, so tell us about your awesome new book. Um, well, so my book is set in Oregon, yeah. so it's real convenient that AWP That's nice. <laughs> decided to be in Portland this year. Did you plan the whole um, publishing schedule around yes. having it launch? <laughs> yes. In your hometown. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's set in a fictional town, which is kind of an amount of couple places including the town I live in, Corvallis, Oregon, um, and uh, the town's called Clearing, and it's about four neighbors who share a cul-de-sac, and it starts out, um, and you're sort of like, this is a family drama, and we're following people as they struggle with their careers and their kids and all those things, mm-hmm. um, but then some strange things start to happen, um, and uh, as you keep reading, um, you discover that each of them is seeing flashes of what their life might have been like if they had made another choice or if chance events had happened. So it's literary fiction, family drama, but it's got like a hint of speculative um, fiction. I love it. In the vein of like The Leftovers. Yes. Station Eleven. Yeah. Looks like that. Yeah. Um, so it really started with, um, well, really, it started with me having my first child and just uh, having this sort of constant thought of like, what if I had, had a girl instead of a boy? Right. Or what if, what would my life be like if I had not? What would I be doing right now if I had not had this baby? Oh, <laughs> permanently oh my in my arms. Which is a trope of parents everywhere. I think that's why I identified with you so much on Twitter and why I had to hunt you down here. Because yes. that is something that we do yes. all the time. Yes. My husband and I uh, have three kids and we... So you know. Yeah. We had two and things were going great. Oh, and then uh, you just we were at, We were... Uh, the, the youngest was in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Like... 8 to 3 p.m. we had our our own lives. Oh, yeah. And then we had a third child. Why? Why? Why did you do that? <laughs> we love you, our youngest child, but, you know, it does. It, it changes that's, in all kinds um, of ways. And every day. It, yes. Yeah. And that's actually, um, you can look for it. I wrote an essay for the New York Times. I was going to mention that. And it's all about trying to decide whether or not we're going to have a third child oh my gosh um, and sort of thinking having this sort of like ghost life in the back of your mind yeah. of what it would be if right. you had a third child um but I think the concept is of course broader than parents because everybody has thought like what if I had taken that job or right. not taken that job or what if I hadn't moved 
you know, mm-hmm. away or... Which is treated also in your novel as well. It's not yes. just, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really about, um, you know, a sort of universal human impulse to sure. think, you know, right. we have imaginations and there's like other lives going on in our minds all the time. Right. Um, so it's sort of like, what if you could see some of that play out? And then, how would that change your your trajectory? Would you would you be inspired to change? Would you go a little crazy? Right, <laughs> um, right. The book kind of follows like four different reactions to um, seeing that kind yeah. of what if scenario. What can you tell us about your publishing journey? We talk about that yeah. a lot on the yes. show, and people are always really interested I to would, hear how you find your way. I'd be happy to. Um, this is such a great celebratory moment right now because yeah. um, I'm with some other debut authors and I've been to AWP before when I didn't have an agent and just was really did not know what I was doing yes. <laughs> and go to panels like about, you know, agents talking about query letters How and all that. write a query letter. Yeah, so I've yeah. been through like the whole span, but um, really quickly, I... I have a PhD in literature and I um, taught for a while, but apropos of what I was just talking about, I had my first child and we moved and I sort of started to think it wasn't necessarily the thing I wanted to do. Um, And I started writing. The teaching wasn't the thing you wanted to do? Yeah, being a scholar and writing about books. Mm-hmm. I secretly wanted to write the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I started writing this book. And, um, you know, I don't have an MFA, so I, I just I got a, found a critique group and went to some workshops. Um, some of them are here, like Tin House. And, nice, yeah. Um, Squaw Valley as well. And I just kind of sort of fumbled my way along yeah. until I had a full draft so this book was like six years in the making partly because I was teaching myself how to write a book and also at the same time yeah (laughs) and also like you know I was doing it during my kids nap time that's a feat all of that Mm -hmm. little little morning preschool hour (laughs) (laughs) typing away because you gotta pick them up like literally drop them off and then like immediately you have to pick them up because it's like just a little morning program so I just write as much as I could but um and then I was very fortunate to meet my agent at a workshop outside of San Francisco called Lit Camp which is a great um program and um it seemed very slow up until that point I was querying for about eight months did, did a couple of like revisions um, but then once I got my agent we did one revision together and we sold it like a month later in a holy day. crap that's awesome congrats well so, I'm so glad that you trusted your secret impulse to write books instead of write about yes, books and now I, your book is in the it world it worked out it seemed <laughs> at the time like maybe I shouldn't give up teaching and you know but what if but you it, hadn't? But exactly. 
<laughs> exactly. Thank you so much for coming on the Thank show. Thank you. Before we go, tell us where um, people can find your new article in the Times, yeah? Yes. And anything else you want to, um, um, I mean, go pick up If Then, obviously. Yes, everyone if do Then it. is at your um, local independent bookstore. Yes, it is. Um, and it's also at your online seller of choice, which could, in fact, be Powell's, which is a great place yes. to buy books online. Yes. Um, and also the audiobook is um, fantastic. Cool. It has my favorite narrator, Rebecca Lohman. She narrated nice. all of Rainbow Rolls books. Oh, okay, cool. And she's so great, and the uh, audiobook is really fantastic, although it is weird to listen to your own book. But <laughs> So I haven't actually listened to the whole thing because it's just too strange, but yeah. she's an amazing um, actress and narrator. Um, and you can find the New York Times article, which is about this idea of ghost lives in the Well family section, but you could just um, search my name. What's Kate the What's Hope the title of that article? It's um, Carrying the Ghosts of lives unlived. Yeah, but if you just Google Kate Hope Day and ghosts, it it'll comes come up. up. <laughs> there you go. We'll link to it in the podcast notes too. Yeah, that Thank would be you great. So Thank much. you. So you want me to? Yeah, yeah, now? please. Okay. So I'm Jay Casper Kramer, um, and I am a middle grade author out of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and my debut novel comes out this year. It's called The Story That Cannot Be Told. Awesome. And uh, what the publisher? It's with Simon & Schuster, 8th and E.M., uh, which is one of their kid-lit imprints. And you were telling us about the German translation that's yes. coming out. Yeah, so the deal isn't officially announced yet, but we are we have sold abroad in Germany translation rights, and it's actually going to be an adult book over in Germany, as interesting as that is. Yeah, uh, what is behind that? Can you tell us a little bit about it? So when I initially wrote it, um, my protagonist was always 10 years old. She's uh, living in communist Romania in 1989, and she wants to be a writer. And and the story was always about her and set in this time. And in part because um, the idea came from some very good friends of mine who were Romanian. And that's when they grew up. They grew up in the 80s in Romania and they were about this age. And so the story was always there. Um, and I didn't know if it would be an adult book or a kid lit book. I just wrote it. And when I signed with my agent, we both thought it was an adult book. Um, and in the end, it wound up selling as a kid lit book. And I'm totally fine with that because I write way A2. So, um, but, it, but it is very interesting, I think, that, it, that it's going to wind up being both out in the world. The same book. That, that's so. excellent. Because what I've read is that most, I don't know the exact percentage, but most YA books are read anyway by mm-hmm. adults, right? right? Yeah, and I think that's that happens a lot with middle grade too. Um, we just maybe don't hear about it as much, but I think you know. Uh, so there are a lot of these crossover novels that wind up wind up going into the hands of children because the language is easy enough for them to read, but the themes and the content and stuff um, can be much more adult, and they are just able to take from it what they can, and adults maybe get something else out of it that's different. 
and and I think that's really interesting too. Mm. What's it like wrapping this uh, YA book up, being able to sell it, mm -hmm. closing yeah. the deal, and then soon you said November, October, yeah, October, mm -hmm. having it out into the world. What, yeah. What's that whole journey been like for you? Honestly, you know, I've wanted this my whole life for forever. When I was a little kid, it, all, I always told everyone I wanted to be an author. And and so it's kind of, it's very surreal that it's finally happening now. <laughs> um, and a lot of the time, I don't even feel like I believe it. Like, sometimes I sort of sit back in shock and I kind of go, oh, wow, I have an agent. Like, <laughs> like I still think about that. And, and now I have advanced copies of the book, so I've been able to hold it in my hand. And that presents another level of like oh wow this is really happening but when I see it on a shelf that's that's gonna be it like I don't I'll probably just cry in the store wherever oh, I am <laughs> and so this will be your first one yes yeah it's my debut wow. October 8th so and how about uh, your work before this one this book uh, what what had you tried to put out into mm -hmm. the world or have yeah. been working on and maybe you know it's okay it's your first one you, yeah you, like to me you look like you're like 20 years old oh <laughs> well thank you I'm not <laughs> but thank you um I so so I I have a couple publications of creative nonfiction actually um my first publication was in the rumpus and um and then I've had a couple other essays and some other magazines and stuff um but I always wrote fiction, and when I was younger, I had this YA series, this fantasy series, that I just kept rewriting and rewriting for most of my life. Um, so it's always been in that realm. I love fairy tales, I love folklore, uh, I love fantasy, and after I went to grad school and, and I really learned the value of research, um, it kind of changed the way that my fantasy was developing, where now I, I, I incorporate fantasy elements into my work. Uh, story has a lot of retold Romanian fairy tales in it, um, but, but I also love the historical fiction setting. I love basing things in the real world with, with real conflicts. This has to do with the Romanian Revolution in 1889. So, um, so I like this blending. I think the sweet spot I found for my writing is is this blending of real world history, but then the origins of where I think a lot of stories come from with fairy tales and folklore. Yeah, yeah. So that's awesome. So there are these points of connection mm -hmm. to reality that helps ground your work, yeah. but also is fictional, and so. I would see that you will have a lot of leeway or room you know, to expand on, on what's going on with the characters. Yeah, and I, I love looking at the place too where um, where the real world and the fantastic kind of meet and and what that looks like and how we can show that in writing. So, so there is a clear divide in my book between the historical fiction chapters and the fairy tale chapters. They're separated even with design elements, but at some point in the book, I think most readers will probably see some bleed, some crossover between those two worlds, and and I think 
that's sort of representative of kind of how we tell stories in life, too, that sometimes the fantastic sort of seeps into the reality. Mm. And I love looking at that spot. So. That's, that's neat. Uh, what does that say about like, who we are as readers and thinkers in, in this world that, that something like that is a, yeah. is a feeling? I, I think, you know, as someone who's, who likes to write creative nonfiction, too, talking about what the truth is is really interesting. What What is fantastic? What is real? And because at the end of the day, when I write CNF, I try so hard to be true to my real experience, whatever it was that really happened to me. But but sometimes, if it's been a long time, I, I don't really remember exactly what I was wearing or what it felt like or who said what in a conversation. Um, and, and so I think just... Naturally, the truth winds up being whatever is real winds up being distorted, and maybe even what you think is real is not anymore, and that means it's fantastic. And so, uh, so I, I feel like even even as readers and as human beings, we kind of uh, blur the line between reality and fiction constantly. So to have that happen with the fantastic in, in our realistic fiction, I think maybe is representative of that. Yeah, that's awesome, that's so, that's so good. Well, um, now what's the next step in, uh, in your work? Yeah, so we're now, we're early reviewers have advanced copies of the book, um, and by October 8th, it'll be on shelves, and hopefully I'll be doing some touring at least around the Southeast. Um, and and then it's just working on the next project. So I have a couple other books up my sleeve that I'm getting ready uh, to hopefully be finished with soon. And they're both sort of in the same realm, historical fiction with one has a supernatural element and another one's rooted in Eastern European folklore again. So um, so I guess I've kind of find my found my niche and that's, and that's so good. That's so good. Uh, thank you so much for being on this podcast, a special edition at AWP. Yes, thank you so much for having uh, me. It, uh, this is uh, Jay Casper Kramer, and her uh, work is uh, a YA uh, novel called The Story That Cannot Be Told. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm going to tell a story about a man named LaRue Cook. You guys, <laughs> this is what happens at AWP. You're walking around, somebody tells you to buy a book. Okay, I'll buy a book. And then you find out the person who is signing said book is from the town where you went to graduate school. That's what just happened. And so now I'm here talking to LaRue Cook and we like, you know. So you were you, you were grad in grad school? Yes. Okay, so I was an undergrad. Doing journalism. Right. And you were doing journalism? No, I was oh. doing creative writing. Okay. So you were, what, Michael Knight? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I tried to, I was too late on the deadline to get in there, and so that's how I ended up at uh, Georgia State in Atlanta, where I'm a PhD student now. How about but it? That, but, but we're getting ahead of ourselves, right? No, that's all right. Yeah, yeah. So then, so, but you know Michael Knight, too. I know of Michael Knight, right. Jessica, who's the third part of our triumvirate here at Bloomsday, mm-hmm. she and I both we're studying under Michael Knight. We met because we did a novel survey class, no, a novel workshop class. Okay. Um, with Jessica, 
Michael Knight and me, and we met in like, I can't remember the name of the coffee shop, and I don't know if it's still there. It was in a yellow Victorian house. Um, I don't know. Jessica's gonna be so mad at me. She was always there remembers like the Gill name. Or something? Or was it in? It was campus? outside of downtown, so it okay. wasn't Fourth and Gill. It was like, uh, what direction is that? I don't know. It west, but not not okay. Sequoia Hills. Just just on the way out. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Not interesting. But that's what podcasts anyone. are about, right? I know, right? We just shoot, we just sit here and shoot the shit about pe- things that matter to us and no one else. And that's all I really wanted to do, right? Is, <laughs> I mean, that's that's the book, pretty Which much. Which is a great segue. Yeah. Man in the Rearview Mirror is his book. That time I left corporate America, became an Uber driver, and lived to write about it. So tell us about it. Well, basically, so after I graduated undergrad in 07, I took off to New York City to become a famous journalist. Uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> and I, I became a decent um, editor at ESPN. I ended up as a senior editor. And in January of 2016, I had an existential crisis, as we do, and uh, put in my two weeks' notice and left. Did you get to have, like, a Tom Cruise, Jerry Maguire moment where you, like, threw shit out and, like, well, burned stuff? I mean, that's the great thing. Like, with fiction, you can make, you know, there's climax, but life is anticlimactic. Uh-huh. And I just kind of, like, walked out of Bristol, Connecticut and never looked back. And nobody really, I don't know if they cared or not, but one way or another. But this is kind of how I introduce readings. This was January of 2016. Had no idea that... Um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were going to face off in the presidential election. And so I went from the northeastern bubble back to the south. And Uh so, um, you know, the book is not necessarily political, but at the end of the day, I went from an area where Hillary was the lesser of two evils to where Trump was the lesser of two evils, just getting off of a plane. Right. And so I was an Uber driver in Knoxville, Tennessee, and... We were people were talking about the election, but we were talking about a lot of other things too. And pun intended, Uber was a vehicle to allow me as a writer to get into topics that I might not otherwise have been able to get into. Um, and then it was a lot of dealing with. My father was in sports journalism, and I had followed his his legacy. He passed away when I was 15, and so I kind of looked up one day and said, "I don't think I really want to do this, and I think I'm not dealing with." my past yeah yeah, yeah. And so and then it, but you know there's no better place to, to to go through all these things than in your your own car with strangers yeah you know, who have no it. preconceptions or um you know notions of you so you can kind of be real yeah um so yeah, yeah that's kind of how it happened and then uh tell me about these guys with uh, uh woodhall press how'd you find your way there so we are all uh alums of the fairfield university uh, low residency mfa program which is in connecticut and so while i was a uh, senior editor at espn i was getting my mfa part-time and that's where i met uh colin and dave and a guy and a guy named chris and the, the press wasn't uh hadn't been started yet but um like about two years ago they said look you know we're editors we're writers you know and and, and Dave can talk to anybody and he's really pretty and he, and, and he was like I'm a good you know I can do the PR stuff and so they started a press and now Woodhall partners with Fairfield uh, University to do a book prize mine's not part of that but um, they just they I started doing social media hits and then I started a website and they kind of got wind of it and they were like let's make a book right so yeah that's fantastic. Yeah, oh very gosh. cool. And now you're at AWP, and we run into each other. And yeah, in Knoxville, and, and you're in Houston now, you said? Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. So uh, the other person, Jessica, she's uh, she's in Boston. So we do a lot of stuff remotely and end up sometimes sending our 
our poets and authors up that way and kind of network in that true, you know cross-country way and um and where it sounds like we're on very parallel paths with uh, Woodhall which is which is great because there's room I think for this kind of work to be out there oh yeah and I at the end of the day you know not to knock uh, a big press but I really wanted to have a lot of control with this book because it is so personal uh, I'm a fiction writer um by degree and but then this nonfiction, like it was about my mother and my father and you know right. my past life and so you know I knew they would uh I knew that they would keep me honest but also let me be as honest as I could be well it's a beautiful book you thank you be very proud. thank you for having me yeah thanks for coming on Show. Thank you. Thank you for hey, having yeah. me. Yeah. Let us know, uh, just introduce yourself and tell us what you're doing here at the conference. Tight. Yeah. I'm Paolo Bicchieri. I'm uh, here at the conference as a writer, as a novelist, poet, journalist. Um, I'm also working with 826 Valencia. They're not here officially. It's just awesome to rep them while yeah, I'm here. And yeah. Yeah. I, I picked you off the street because you had a cool squid sweatshirt on. Yeah. It's like a little tentacle. Uh-huh. And uh, I have read like two works lately that had that featured squid. Have you read The Sympathizer? Viet oh Win? shit! Yes, that book's that... so rough but so good. Oh I mean, and hey, talk about like Texas and Vietnamese folks in the South and like that was given to me by a northern Italian couch surfer of mine, actually. He gave me the book, and I was like, I don't know what the fuck this is, like, uh-huh, but I'm going to uh-huh, check it out. Uh-huh. And it just was so captivating. I had just read The Invisible Man recently, and that oh, book that's heavy. So, that's such a good pairing. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's so important when we receive books in our lives and like how they how they find their way into the, the order of things that we read, order of mm-hmm. operations kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So that's cool. That's a yeah. great sort of setup yeah, for no, that. No such thing as a coincidence. No, no, no yeah. No doubt. Uh, the squid scene has never and probably will never leave me do you remember the scene yeah 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 it's it's brutal it's yeah. brutal we can oh. move on from we can there. move on from yeah. the brutality yeah <laughs> we'll go into something different my point was i noticed the shirt and then it yes. turned into be even something cooler right yeah the pirate supply with. store yeah mm-hmm. can you tell us about 826 valencia for those of you who the uninitiated into a dave eggers world of awesome shit that he yeah. does yeah, I mean, I'm on the volunteer team, so the pitch, let's see if I've got it as well as I should for my okay, job. Yeah. 826 Valencia is a nonprofit serving under-resourced students in the Bay Area. We work with students 6 to 18 on transforming their relationship to writing through confidence, skills, and pride. Because we believe great leaps in learning can happen through writing. That's amazing. TM. That was astounding. I feel like if Dave Eggers were here, I mean, I'm sure he listens to our podcast religiously. So when yeah. he hears this, right. he's going to be like, that dude. He's <laughs> be like, I should give that guy a raise. That guy needs to move <laughs> up wherever he is in the hierarchy. Yeah, I'm sure. He yeah. needs to go up a few runs. Uh-huh. That's awesome. Okay, so tell us about your writing. Yeah, well, my writing's pretty all over the place. I had um, a self-published fantasy book in 2017 uh, that I worked with, like a small press in Bellingham, Washington. I've sold a couple hundred copies of that book uh, called Eight Gods, Green Dragons. Basically just me and my friends doing fantasy stuff at large. Uh, nice. And, yeah, it was Are like Are you a, too young for dun- Dungeons and Dragons? Oh, no, that I, a... I fuck happy with Dungeons okay. and Dragons for sure. <laughs> I'm in a campaign right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Uh-huh. Okay. I, so that was that was cool for me, and I think more than anything, though, it was, I mean, it had typos. It was, like, not not pretty, but it was a cool learning experience, and it was 
validating and it was sort of like a cat out of the bag type of thing where like now I'm really going to try to do this um, and then since then a lot of journalism a lot of poetry um, gotten paid a couple times which is rad it's always yeah always tight satisfying super cool uh-huh. um, doing a lot of readings in the Bay Area now a lot of poetry and then in the next two weeks I have one story coming out on Rig Welter um, called Pink Singularity it's like a trans erotica thing oh, cool. short story then um, uh, largest audience I've had for a short story in Stand Art magazine um, called Coffee and Paint. That'll be rad. And a really small press is putting out a novella of mine in October. I love novellas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's cool. It's a cool form. It's like a queer vampire hunter thing. And, and it, it's cool. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I wrote on that with my dad, and that'll be really cool to see. Wait, what? Yeah, my dad and I like co-wrote this thing together. That's super cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So the third part of our Bloomsday Triumvirate is, uh, like I've said this 14 times already on the podcast, so if you're listening to AWP's episode in, you know, like continually, just forgive me for re-saying this, but I have new guests, so I have to like catch them up. You gotta do it. Um, is from Boston, and she and I wrote, are writing, co-writing a book together. I love that sort of collaborative experience. So tell me what it was like with your dad. Uh, it was really interesting. I was in uh, rehab at the time, okay. which is maybe a book someday, you know, who sure. knows. Um, and I was just finding an outlet for the story. It was cool. It was a vampire hunter thing. And I wrote it and I just was like 19 at the time and sent it to some of my family members. And my dad was the only one that was like, that's cool, but also all these other things. Like, everyone else was like, that's cool, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, and my dad was like, that's cool, but also he should do this, and this should happen. And I remember just being like, you know, dude, if you want to, like, write the next chapter, like, yeah. you should just do it. And, like, not even angry, just kind of like, you seem super excited, you should do it. It wasn't and passive? It How wasn't. Much? Like, a tiny percentage I, of passive? You know what? There's, like, a 15%. <laughs> I was like, this fucking guy, like, come on. <laughs> I was like, can you just be, like, excited? Um, but he was, I was like, yeah, you should do it. And then he was super excited, and he took the character more into like historical fiction um it's like turn of the century new york and i was more like i just want to talk about vampires and being gay basically and uh (laughs) and he was like no we should like do this big thing so then he would write a chapter and then i would write a chapter and back and forth um we edited it for a while and then just pitched it around um yes going albin lake publishing super small outfit but uh really cool really cool process that's awesome yeah yeah, that's sort of moving past your passive aggressive anger the uh maybe it's the sobriety maturity right yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah you got there and now you have this to show for it that's so yeah, cool where yeah. do our re- where do our listeners find uh find the work my stuff right now is on my own website <laughs> www.paolobicchieri.com and then i'm on twitter paolo schmaulo nice. um, thank you that's a high school shout out um, and I'm sure there are plenty of Palos in the world who are pissed at you that yeah. you have that. It's a good one. I'm never yeah. letting it go. Tag. Um, and then, I, yeah, that book will come out with Alvin Lake Publishing in October. Right on. Yeah. Hey, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is rad. Thanks. weirdest shit that's been going on here what's been going on well i feel you know there was i don't know do you listen to a bunch of podcasts do you listen to reply all i don't listen to reply all there was this episode uh where they talk about uh if there's any validity to this thing that facebook listens in on your microphone like on your computer or your phone and then directs ads 
to you based on what is happening. Right. And I feel like maybe the AWP is doing that. Because we have said there was a period yesterday of about two hours where neither Fu nor I could remember the word for the one single continent that used to exist together. You know the word I'm talking about. When the when the land was just one piece. Oh, Pangea. Yeah. Yeah. Neither of us could come up with that. Yeah. We kept on saying Patagonia. Because we're in Portland and everything's <laughs> Patagonia. And then two people walked by hours later and were like, yeah, Pangea. After we had come up with... Yeah, yeah. And then... I don't know, four guests ago, I said something about ground control to Major Tom, and we were launching into this David Bowie riff, and then I opened your book, and the footnote about Major Tom was yeah. the page I opened to. It's, uh, that's crazy. Can you explain this to me, James? We're living in the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about the construct this morning. <laughs> And we haven't even been like drinking at all yet today. So no, this is all completely sober ramblings. Yes, and I'm about to make us, James and I, some gin and tonics. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then when you're done interviewing him, I'm going to sit in your place and we'll talk about aviation and gin and tonics. Oh. Maybe get Ryan Reynolds to sponsor Oh, I think that's a genius plan. I, um, I would like James to introduce himself since he is subjecting himself to this craziness. We should know who he is, I think. Hi. Or maybe he doesn't want to now. Maybe he's like, <laughs> I'm out. This is over. No, no. I'm, I've been on a couple of weird podcasts. So okay. this, this is the most professional one I've been on by far. <laughs> um, I'm James Brubaker. Uh, I'm a writer. Um, Director for Southeast Missouri State University Press. Got nice. a few books out. Yeah. And you're also the distinct, you have the uh, important distinction of being our neighbor. Yeah, and we're right across the aisle from, from you all. Yeah. Um, I, can we talk about booth psychology? Absolutely. This shit is hard. Yes, it is. When, when, what is your plan? Do you avoid eye contact? I got a fangirl again. Hanif Abdurakab just walked by. I said hello. And now Dennis Smith is coming down the fucking aisle. I'm sad I missed Hanif. Foo, man. Foo. Foo. Hand this to D- Dennis. I, I tried to go to a panel that Hanif was on earlier, and I could not get in the door. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm sorry. So we... so. We published Deep Shoes the Poet Laureate, and now and we've been trying to hook up with Dennis. And um, anyway, yeah. Oh, do, do what you got to do. No, man. I get it. No, that's this is what happens though. You like people walk by, you decide whether you're going to engage them. Half the time, they avoid you, or they want to talk and can't. How, how, how's it like been? How's it been for you over there? It's it's been a strange year over there. In past years, we've been able to just kind of be kind of chill and people will come up and I don't know what it is this year but not many people are coming up to us I'm wondering if it's like a west coast thing oh, yeah, people yeah. are seeing Missouri in our name <laughs> and are running away which I don't blame them honestly <laughs> <clears throat> 
Missouri's not a great place, but you know, I like didn't have that in Tampa or DC. Yeah. We could just kind of. Yeah. We've sold maybe like a quarter of the books this year that we have past years. It's been slow. Yeah. It's been very slow. I was talking to CNR Press, and they were feeling like it was slow. Okay, so it's not just us. Yeah. Good. I don't know that we can blame it on Missouri. We could probably blame a lot of things on Missouri and Texas, but I don't know if we can blame these things on our fair states. I feel a little better about that. Okay, good. I'm <laughs> glad. There's another very pressing order of business. Okay. The tennis shoes you're wearing. Oh, yeah. How do you pronounce them? Because we have a debate. Yesterday, we had our good friend Daniel Pena on the podcast, and he insisted it was Sacconi, and I believe that my brother claims it's Sacconi, but everyone else has said Sacconi. I've always said Sacconi. Oh, Jesus. But... I mean, you're wearing them. No one was saying Saucony that had them on. So I think we have to go with you. But I have never been to a place where somebody in the know would say, this is how you say this. <laughs> I just go online and order a pair and say, hey, it's the Sacconis. And there's no pronunciation guide when no. you buy them. Oh, there should be. That'd be... The, this, they're missing out. They're missing on some branding opportunity yeah. here, some marketing opportunity, I think. Yeah. Um, this is the other question I wanted to ask you. We have seen a lot of plaid here. I'm guilty. You had on plaid yesterday. Yeah. Your doppelganger had on plaid yesterday. Yeah. What is the collective noun? If you were in charge of naming collective nouns, what would you call a collection of plaid prints? first thing that popped into my head was way too obvious I'd be like a lumberjack of plaids <laughs> but that's too easy right we needed the I, so my maybe it should be a Portland of that's plaids. what I was gonna say dude <laughs> it's a Portland of plaids so we were at the Texas Book Fest in October and uh, our dear friend and poet D.F. Brown uh, was spending the weekend waxing poetic about collective nouns and my favorite that came out of that weekend was a shit pile of hats. <laughs> That's good, right? That's fantastic. I like Portland of plaids. Okay, so uh, enough of the bull crap. Let me, I want to hear about uh, Black Magic Death Sphere. Um, it's my most recent book. It was published in the fall um, after a long, torturous road to publication. <laughs> it had been accepted or it won a contest at press gang out of butler university okay and then their publisher stepped down he assumed that they would replace him but instead the university scuttled the press so then it was back on the market and it found a home at at, uh urban farmhouse and it was it was a long slow process then um, a little rocky at times uh but the book exists now it's got some of my favorite stories that i've written in it um you know, it's it's a it's a collection of kind of literary-ish, experimental-ish, at times meta-ish sci-fi stories. And are they linked stories, or are they all standalone? Um, linked only thematically. Okay. Like a lot of the thematic ideas kind of circle back around, but there are no kind of reoccurring characters or, or anything like that. Uh, I just opened to a page that says this box contains a quantity of hydrocy- hydrocyanic. 
acid that may or may not be released by the potential decay of a small amount of a radioactive substance. Also, there is a cat in the box. This is a choose-your-own-adventure story. Yeah, I mean, it was inspired by the Schrodinger's cat yes. thought experiment. Yes. Um, and it, it I don't, when I was getting ready to write that book, um, I was reading a lot of sort of like the pop physicist, you know, like uh, uh, Brian Greene, uh-huh. he's reading like some Stephen Hawking and stuff like that, and just kind of, was kind of building on those ideas, and they've both written about, um, you know, the Schrodinger's cat thing, and uh, I liked, I liked the potential of that for sort of exploring our own, like, uncertainty and mortality. Um, sorry, my friends across the way are making funny faces at me. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, and it's, it's, that story was in Zoetrope. Yeah, um, congrats, man. That's which awesome. I still feel was maybe, like, the pinnacle of my writing career, because it was the you know, one of the best publications, but also I'm a big REM fan. Uh-huh. And the issue that I was in, the designer for it was Michael Stipe. What? And when the editor what? from Zoetrope told me that, like, I almost started weeping. What? I was like, I, I can't improve from here. This is, like, this Michael is Stipe. peak James Brubaker. Yeah, like, Michael Stipe has a story that I wrote somewhere in his house. That's awesome. Yeah, but, um... Yeah, so, and then later a friend of mine made a sort of interactive, um, like, web game almost out of the Choose Your Own Adventure story. Yeah. Remind me, I'll send you a link. It's like, oh, you can, like, do. click through and, yeah. So it's That's awesome. My favorite Michael Stipe story is uh, a good friend of mine was in Seattle, and she was eating at some sushi place, and it was late. It was, like, 1030, and she was, and R.E.M. is her absolute favorite, and she sees Michael Stipe at another table. And her, she has, like, these young cousins that are, like, saying, this is your moment. You have to go. Like, it's fate. There's no one else in the restaurant. You have to go talk to her. She he was like, she, she was not, I'm not going over there. I can't interrupt her dinner. But they they uh, persuade her to go. She goes over, and she's like, don't want inter- to interrupt your dinner. I'm not going to ask you to take a picture. I just want to tell you how much I love your work and how much you have changed or you have influenced my life. And he was like, Oh my God, this happens all the time. I'm so sorry. I'm not really Michael Stipe. She's like, you know, shame spiral. All the color goes out of her face. She walks back to her cousins, completely dejected. It's awful, awful, awful. And then a beautiful dessert comes to their table and another round of drinks. And he walks out and says, you're okay, Texas. Oh, because she does this awkward thing where she says, I'm from Texas. And I think he had some kind of Texas connection at some point. There was there was some there was something she knew about his life that was Texas related and she was like I know this means nothing to you and she's like rambling and then he says you're all right Texas and like paid for her her meal and it was the best story I love it that's fantastic yeah isn't that great all right so you're gonna you're gonna send me a link to that yes love having you on the show I know Fu wants to talk to you about gin which is really you know the most important thing it, it's up there according to Fu. <laughs> I like gin. Good. I had to ride the train in Portland and walk four blocks down to the liquor store to buy some aviation gin, bring it back to the convention center in Portland, and then my friend James here, he had to 
go out and procure two cups of ice for me to make some great gin and tonics for us while we're it was worth doing. it all yes this is delicious i appreciate your, your effort yeah. you're welcome you're welcome um so uh so let's okay we'll talk gin in a bit then we'll talk literary but uh what do you like about gin james what, what is it about gin? I like it's... It always, you know, once you get up from, like, rail gin, there's always, like, a complexity of flavor to it. Mm-hmm. My, my other liquor of choice is rye. Yes. And, you know, there's... I've had very few ryes that I would describe as interesting. You know, I just like the little hints of flavor and the, the kick in the back of the throat. Yeah, the spiciness. Uh-huh. Yeah, but so many gins, like have completely different characteristics um another one i really like is the botanist yes you know it's just like that's a good spicy one um there's a bunch i can't even name i, was I think t- 30 38 monkey have you ever had no. that 38 different botanicals Ooh. yeah squeezed into a low bottle it's i don't think you can get a 750 you can probably get a a i'm i'm um I'm using my hands to describe like almost a pint-sized bottle of, uh, of 37 Monkey Gin, uh, which is about $40 in Texas. Okay. Which is fairly expensive for Yeah, I've not, I've not seen that in Missouri. I'll keep an eye out for it. Yeah, it's very nice, uh, very complex. Um, yes, I don't, I don't think a person's palate can pick up you know all the flavors but I think I think you know what your palate might pick up would be different from what my palate would pick up and that's what I think will make it good you know absolutely and that's and yeah that's why gin's so fun it's like every so many of them just have such distinct characteristics and I'm never quite sure what they are um but I love it I was telling I was telling you yesterday. Yeah. We have a, a place in St. Louis called Natasha's Gin Room that just has a wall full of gin. Oh, that sounds great. It's fun, and and they carry aviation also. They do. Yeah. A few of their cocktails are, are made with aviation gin. Right. Well, let's. Uh, I think that's a good segue into uh, the literary world. You know, so some people uh, will read your your book, uh, Black Magic. Death sphere and uh, and pick up uh, a few different things, a few different flavors, and others will pick up others, right? And right. Uh, so, what is it that you think uh, people will pick up from it? What What are some of the themes in which existential dread? <laughs> <laughs> it's I, you know like that's what, very common these days. Yeah, and I think you know I I wrote this in a kind of pre. Uh, before politics got to be what they are, um, you know, before before politics got to be what they are, when things weren't quite as bleak. Uh, but I was living in Oklahoma, okay, which you know, kind of was its own cause for 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 that kind of that kind of dread. And I just found a lot of the sort of sci-fi ideas I was exploring. Um, you know, whether it be sort of how time works and time travel or 
alternate universes were good kind of metaphors to explore mm. those kinds of fear and, and dread without um, writing the same kind of thing that I'd written before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you know, um, time travel only works for white people. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, because like if 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 I were to travel back in time in the U.S., you know. Um, like maybe 50 years ago, it wouldn't be a good situation for me. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, good, good point. <laughs> but but yeah, t- and I, I think. Uh, but I'm fascinated with time travel, with the paradoxes that can arrive from from time travel, and uh, and I love sci-fi too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Watch a lot of sci-fi. Grew up reading uh, sci-fi. What, what are some of your favorite sci-fi? Well, uh, uh, Arthur C. Clarke. It, you know, it's like the standard, you know, sci-fi stuff. I grew up uh, reading. Um, uh, not so uh, well. There, uh, there was a series, and you could probably remind me uh, on Netflix. Um, I think it's called. Alter Carbon. Oh, I've been dying to watch yeah. that. Yeah, so it's based on book, uh, a British novelist, um, sci-fi writer. Uh, it's very good. It's very good. And um, the uh, uh, the themes are, are are very complex. The main character um, is uh, is originally Japanese, and uh, but. His, um, so it's set in the future where uh, a person can download their sort of soul, their mind into a computer chip, okay, and uh, hence they can replace their bodies uh, with whatever bodies they want to. Uh, and so uh, this, this, uh, the main character who is Japanese. Uh, he's he wakes up and he's in a body of a white guy, uh, and so he has uh, to live his life out uh, as, as this, this uh, white dude. Uh, and so, uh, so yeah, there's there's uh, many themes of existence and and being and yeah, in in that uh, that show. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. It's on my summer watch list when I have a little more time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, yeah, so sci-fi, I, I think you could approach um, very relevant themes in different ways, you know, that, that are fascinating, intriguing. Yeah, yeah that, that's what I was trying to do with the book. I mean, there's a story about someone who refuses to answer his girlfriend's marriage proposal. Um, because he's afraid that making any decision will lead to the creation of millions of alternate universes. So he's sort of using that kind of made-up fear yeah, yeah. to justify his indecision. Yeah, it, yeah, and some people live their lives that way. Yeah, it's paralyzing. They, yeah. they see all sorts of things that can happen in the future, and therefore you know, uh, they get stuck. Know, and you know, whatever possibilities might or, or might not occur. That's great. That's great. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed the rest of AWP. I uh, you as well. Thank you. Thank you.
Cheers. Cheers, my friend. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. So can you tell us who you are and uh, what brought you to AWP? Sure. Uh, my name is Jameson Lee. Uh, I teach at North Idaho College. Um, I am recently published a novel called To Deer at Swim uh, with Litfest Press. Uh, I came here to, you know, same reason as everyone comes to AWP really, and um, to do a, a reading. To talk and about to Plaid on my podcast. That exa- Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I had a very similar dream, so, yeah. <laughs> Oh, I didn't even finish. So I had the Great Dane dream, and then Fu the next day uh, had a dream about rescuing puppies. And then we went to a coffee shop this morning, and there were, we sat down t- to a table, a four-top, and the, the other two women were on their phones, like, uh, swiping for their puppy, like... It was a, a animal adoption app that someone had made that was like Tinder, so you can you can swipe the puppy that you want. Oh, okay. And um, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. It's genius. Yeah, yeah. I love um, that. Yeah, so. and I'm I'm really glad I. <clears throat> I learned that um, in the world of, of animals and animal care, where I live in Idaho, um, certain animals that you might expect to have domesticated rights really don't and so um, I'm it's always nice to be in a place where you know you see people like uh, walking a pet pig yeah. on the street and things like that so. that makes you feel good about yeah. what's happening in the world it does good. yeah it yeah. really does we were at Texas Book Fest and there was a cat on a leash that was like happily meandering through the stacks that was good but that's not exactly what you're talking about yeah you like not pigs and lizards and those yes kind of bunnies things. Oh, that's nice. Um, yeah, yeah. This is this is my therapy bunny. Please let me have him on the plane, kind of thing. That would be amazing. Yeah. Um. So yeah, let's talk serious literature because that's what we fucking oh, do Jesus. here on the okay. fucking podcast, the fucking Shakespeare podcast. Yeah. So tell me about two deer at swim. So uh, to deer at swim is first of all, I think it's important to note it's a satire. Um, it's sort of. Uh, follows four different characters whose lives intersect in ways that uh, sound bizarre, I suppose, on the surface. Um, The plotted theft of sex parts, um, people who are deciding that they are going to uh, go for gender reassignment, and also um, learn of the attachment of male parts to... um, uh, women undergoing such surgeries uh, in China. This has been done successfully, um, and you know other places. They read about this and they decide, uh, well, we are going to murder someone and take this part. And there are conversations that occur, um, you know, around this. And essentially, the, this person decides that uh, anyone who is uh, willing and able to exploit. Um, so they're going to pose as sex workers and then take the part, you know, because they think that uh, a person who, who is willing to do this, who's willing to exploit as they see it, um, sex workers in this way, is uh, worth killing. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and so, um, so, so the book sort of 
It involves that. It involves a other sinister kinds of things related to um, sexual exploitation. But it's actually meant as a comedy and as a satire. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It deals with language that um, I think is just horribly ugly. Um, and that, that is something that I think that I, I had misgivings and, and compunctions and, and issues with, but essentially uh, erred on the side of uh, reflecting the, the times. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And then, you know, having spent all this time with the work, writing and then editing, do you have the same feeling about that you did the right thing to go that route? Yes, I do. I am, Despite I am, its uh, difficulties? Yes, I am an opponent of linguistic whitewashing. Okay. Um, it, you know, the, Twain comes to mind in, in his, his use of uh, the word that I don't even feel comfortable saying, although I would write it, um, you know, in, in Huck Finn. Mm -hmm. And um, that was sort of a formative experience for me, I guess, as a, a youngster studying literature and, and under, learning about that debate. Um, and to me, it seems very clear that it's necessary to, to delve into that sort of ugliness as as an author and someone who's reflecting the times I guess as Nina Simone would put it yeah 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 how about it what uh what was the publishing journey like then for especially work that is this um volatile and some I'm sure some presses would want to step away and and you know have nothing to do with it how do you find your place yes well i was pretty fortunate to um be in touch with litfest press uh who they were great to work with um they're very uh supportive of experimental writing um both in form and content so i think they were pretty happy uh to take on the project and it was just a, it was a perfect match really right for on. me for my first novel yeah how'd you find him uh, so I uh, did my PhD in English studies, uh, focused on creative writing in, at Illinois State University. And the woman who runs the press, uh, her name is Jane Carmen. Uh, she also uh, comes out of Illinois State. So like any first novel gets published, you know, I'm sure plenty of nepotism, plenty of whatever <laughs> that is, right? You yeah. know, exactly, right of place at the right time. <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah. That's good. It, it can be difficult for some people, and I'm glad that you found the right place. Um, and I'm also glad that there are um, presses out there who are taking rest. Yes. Yeah. And I, I actually, I had support as well from uh, a fantastic uh, fellow Ohio native uh, writer named uh, Donald Ray Pollock, um, who uh, read the work, um, gave great insight and in fact blurbs it, which I'm just so, so proud of because um, his work is so amazing. Um, so yeah, so you know, again, uh, had, had great support through the whole thing really, I got very lucky. That's awesome. Yeah. Where are you from in Ohio? Uh, <laughs> I'm from Amish country. Are you? Yeah. I'm uh, from Columbus. You're from Columbus, yeah. okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm from east of Cleveland in Geauga County, Burton, Ohio. How about it? Yeah. Maple syrup and rolling hills of Amish farms. There you go. Yeah. To this that you're about to read uh -huh. from us, can you read an excerpt? Yes. So um, this is Wentworth. Uh, Wentworth has lost the ability to, and maybe he's really given the ability away, I think. Um, 
the difference between sincerity and sarcasm is, is sort of gone for him. And this bleeds, and I guess I use that verb intentionally, it, it bleeds into his life in, in physical ways as well. Um, and, and, you know, I don't, obviously wouldn't give a lot away, but uh, it, I don't think it's too much to say that there's an unraveling of sorts uh, for him. And uh, so, again, not giving a lot of way to note that he sort of ends up the, the villain, I suppose, to put it in a traditional sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, so here, here's a scene where, uh, let's see, he has been, <laughs> he's been dismissed from his position as a um, graduate fellow at Kent State University. Uh, he was um, studying men's studies. And so uh, I would see it as a men's rights activist getting kind of flayed uh, in the novel. Um, and so he's sort of off the deep end at this point, and he is um, acting as a substitute teacher, which is a very easy gig to get, as, as those who've done it, I guess, know. Mm -hmm. Shall I begin? Sure. Okay. Please. myself comfortably here. So, <laughs> Wentworth was subbing at this middle school, the name of which I'll spare us. All morning he'd been censoring himself a bit, what with the above noted legal troubles of the poor Mr. Everett, and he was just about to burst in a couple ways. So, bubbling now with the orneriness and rebellion, he sought relief in the restroom a place he expected to be empty, as the children were at lunch. But upon lumbering in, he noticed a boy at the urinal. This enraged him. After all the shit he'd been holding in all morning, this, now this, not even a bit of privacy to blow off some steam and take a shitty piss. He growled and lowered his face to the boy, then strode up to him and began to unzip his fly at the urinal directly benext the little fellow, cheek to jowl as it were. The boy's eyes shot over at him, then quickly back to his own stall. There were, after all, about eight other urinals Wentworth could have chosen. The boy, small for his age, eleven, was right at eye level with Wentworth's waist. Wentworth looked down at him with disgust. Suppressing the urge to speak, he instead spit his gum into the runty boy's urinal. The chewed-over wad of blue bounced feebly and rolled up to the side of the porcelain before resting below on the round grate. The boy did not startle easily. He had suffered molestations from bullies scarier than this old dork. <laughs> he stared stalwartly into Wentworth's urinal and returned fire, hawking the loose heap of wet, crushed skittles he'd been sucking on. His aim, precisely as one might expect from an 11-year-old boy, was immaculate. The lump of dyed sugar exploded directly at the bottom of Wentworth's urinal, spattering him with his own and others' pee, not to mention the sweet pea-tart shards of purple shrapnel which, having discharged helter-skelter from the blast, now stuck feebly to his hand and penis. Stunned, Wentworth leered down and without even turning from the urinal or stopping his stream of pee, he shoved the little demonic spawn of Gallagher into an adjacent urinal. He didn't watch. He only heard the damp thump of the boy's head against the top corner of the undersized urinal. As the boy slumped and fell woozily toward the ground, he grabbed at the edge of the urinal. 
an instinctive attempt to interrupt his fall. But the other children's pee had thoroughly lubricated it, and his hand slipped off the urinal's sleek, dull angle, which ultimately accelerated his fall. The back of the boy's head pounded against the floor, where he now lay, unzipped and supine on the sticky coral tile. Just prior to losing consciousness, he raised his hand to his forehead and rubbed it gently, carrying to his brow someone else's young, wet pubic hair. A bit of blood slithered out beside the boy's head. Wentworth's swooning trance of anger descended into an unadulterated terror. His inhalation seized. He quickly zipped his pants and hurried out of the restroom. Then he bolted toward the nearest exit but thought better of it and doubled back toward the office, struggling to regain normal respiratory function. I'm not feeling well, he said calmly to the secretary. Luckily, she was, at present, the sole occupant of the front office. I'm going to have to go home, he said ruefully, his stilted inhalations betressing the performance. That's Mr. Wolf subbing for Mrs. Holland. Oh, and I think I heard a fight in the boys' restroom. Might want to check on it. Thanks, he nodded, flashing a perfunctory smile, understood as generous when presented by a man infirm. Then he waved casually and slowly dragged his body toward the door, a great and subtle performance of adult illness. I really enjoy your use of the word dork in that passage. <laughs> Thank you. I think dork is underused. I'm realizing now that I may have won a, some sort of contest for uh, frequency of uh, use of the word urinal yeah? in a paragraph. Yeah. I don't know. That's good. We have a urinal theme going AWP 19 as well, which is bizarre. We rode in an Uber that um, smelled just like a urinal cake. So when the Skittle rests against the grate, I felt for sure that it was going to rest up against a urinal cake. Yeah. Maybe in the next edition you can change that. No, I think that's brilliant. I loved it. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much for reading and for uh, coming on the show. Can you you let our listeners know where they can find more of your work? Yes. um, So the book is available uh, on Amazon. Uh, It's called To Deer at Swim. Uh, Again, my name is Jameson Lee. Um, Yeah. Great. There it is. Thank you so much. Thank you. Olivia, this this is my special guest, Olivia, here that I pulled from next door, <laughs> and she is a student at, at where? I am a student at Michigan State University. I'm an English major. Michigan State, that's a great <laughs> university, it is. by the way, and she's an English major, and what do you want to do with your English mm-hmm. major after you finish up? I want to eventually go into the editing and publishing field. Oh, um, so, good. so I want to go into editing, and I eventually want to work um, as like a reader of sorts for a publication, and just kind of decide what books get put onto the market. Work on, look at what works. You know, maybe in the young adult genre. I think that'd be really awesome. awesome. Young adult books mean a lot to me, so I think that'd be really cool. <laughs> okay, you hear that, Kate? She's after your job. <laughs> you, might, you might not have one when you return. <laughs> So, sure. so uh, 
tell me about how you got into being English major and wanting to go into editing. What's your story? Yeah, I think my story as a writer starts in ninth grade in uh-huh. high school. I remember one time I had to make a creative writing story for my English class. And I remember sitting down and starting to write a story about where I grew up as a young person and moving from that place and how that transition kind of went. And I just remember writing for hours and hours and I just didn't stop writing. And I was like, huh, maybe this is something that I actually enjoy. I never thought of myself as a writer, but maybe that's who I am. Maybe maybe that's what I've been searching for. Wow. Yeah, and my teacher read it, and she thought it was okay. She, she's like, ah, all right. <laughs> yeah, she thought it was okay. Um, and it kind of started from there. I went from writing more long-form pieces to eventually writing poetry. Now I consider myself a bit of a poet. What has AWP I'm done for you. What's it like being here? Ooh, that's a really good question. Well, I think mainly being from Michigan, sometimes it's hard to find people that are like you if you're a, you know, a person that likes to do things outside of the box. It's a bit of, I'd consider Michigan a bit of a traditional state. Uh-huh. I think it's just been nice to come out here and be able to mm. interact with people that have similar goals as yeah. you, similar experiences, similar Uh, aspirations as a writer and Mm -hmm. I think that's just been super encouraging to know that I'm not alone in this and that you know there's a lot of people out here trying to do the same thing and that's really awesome so yeah 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 yeah. it's been my favorite part I think yeah I think that's one of the great things about conference like this is you you get to meet people who uh, have similar tastes and interests Mm -hmm. and experiences and then you can see that you're not the only one you exactly. know you know out in your neck of the woods exactly yeah you know, even though um i find myself fortunate to be in houston mm, you okay. know you know it's a very big city is it? very diverse you know okay. yeah. it's not like michigan mm-hmm. you know? yeah so people need that people need to they do they really do i think um especially for me i grew up in a pretty traditional household so coming out here, it's kind of like a bit of a breath of fresh air. No shade to my family. I love my family. Yeah, uh, tell me about <laughs> about that context. Uh, mm-hmm. You say traditional. Tell yeah, me more about it. Yeah, my family's pretty religious, I'd say. Uh-huh. Pretty Christian religious family. And I'd say I still have a, a faith. Uh-huh. Um, but there's a lot of parts of it that just don't, that don't vibe with what I believe in a uh-huh. lot of ways. And yeah. uh, my family sometimes doesn't understand that. Or sometimes I don't like to talk about that because it, it just leads to like an argument. Mm. You know what I mean? And I think that's one thing that's been awesome about writing is that I can kind of channel that emotion. And even if I feel like I don't, I can't say it to my family, I can say it, you know, on this piece of paper. And even if no one reads it, like it's out there. And that's been really awesome as a writer. Too, yeah, you know? exactly. So, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, the paper becomes mm-hmm. the medium of listening. It really you know? does. It really uh, does. There, you know, there's someone else listening. You get to listen to yourself also, you know? Yeah, you, exactly. It's, yeah. it's the, my favorite part about writing also is looking back on what I've written. Mm. It's um, whenever I can find something that I wrote five years ago and being like, oh my gosh, I'm a completely different person. I don't even recognize this person on the page, you know? Mm. So that's wow, been, yeah. you can see your development. Yeah, you can see the development, and that's been really awesome as well. So, yeah. yeah, and that's special because that's what being a human is about, right? Mm-hmm. You can examine your life, look back mm-hmm. at it, and see, you know how you're going exactly and therefore where where you're headed in your life exactly especially at this age that i'm at i'm 20 i'm about to be 21 in a couple weeks 
And so five years ago, I was, I can't do math, but I think 16, maybe. <laughs> five years ago, I was yes. like 16, 17. Uh-huh. That's and right. Yeah, so like I was such a different person, and it's just wild to me. So it's just mm. been it's just no. been awesome to grow as a writer and as a no, person. I know, and, and you will continue to grow, mm-hmm. you know, you. and that's, that's a great thing about where you are, Olivia, being mm-hmm. 20 and thinking about things like that, like your faith mm-hmm. and where you come from and mm-hmm. I wish I did that when I was 20 <laughs> I don't know what I was doing when I was 20 I was just like wondering if I could ever get a girlfriend you know, when I was 20 you know that's, that's relatable it, I feel that yeah, you know when like, did you start podcasting um when I was 20. no uh what uh, I started podcasting about three years ago okay. uh producing the, this podcast after Shakespeare with uh my uh, great co-host Kate Martin Williams, co-host and partner, uh, our friend Jessica Cole in Boston. Uh, she's our third host, and it's been great. Mm. I've been introduced to so many great writers mm, who've come on to, and talk about their experiences, very and very similar to yours, Olivia. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. it's we've had a lot of great good writers mm-hmm. on our podcast very famous writers too mm-hmm. okay uh, who sold a lot of books really? uh, who are very famous in their own right mm-hmm. but they're they're not that much different than you and me you know yeah for you sure know, you they think ha- about they it they have very similar experiences um, they wake up out of bed get out of bed yeah. just like everybody <laughs> yeah, else yeah just like everyone else <laughs> that's and, crazy and they've just become dedicated in their work and mm-hmm. wanting to work on their craft mm-hmm. and express their life mm-hmm. you know through their own particular lens definitely you know and that's one of the things that i've learned in this these three years of podcasting mm-hmm. you know that mm-hmm. that there really when it comes down to it there's not that much of a difference that separates you and me mm-hmm. um it's the differences that we want to make mm-hmm. you know from yeah it, from yeah it. definitely i think as so I also I mean I study philosophy so that's something that's very interesting to me too you know what I mean that's another big part of my life I like I'm not like you know a lot of the stuff goes over my head not gonna lie but yeah it's difficult stuff to study it but it reminds me of some stuff we talk about how like I mean a lot of our society is like kind of like social convention in a lot of ways you know Mm -hmm. like is it really real or is it just passed down stuff that we've just accepted as fact you know what I mean Yes, exactly. Like the issues of race. Yeah. That's very important uh, right now. Mm-hmm. You know, those are social constructs. Yeah, you know? right. And, you know, really there's that, there's not that much that separates mm-hmm. you and me. Exactly. You know, right. Olivia. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I, um, I, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> Kate. My partner Kate is in trouble again. Oh no! Oh but no. but look, hey, I gotta wrap up with you really quickly, Olivia, okay. because since since we we're we're in like a deep dive right here, <laughs> we gotta we gotta circle back around. Yes, so yes. yeah, and so I don't really yeah there there is not like my brother Daryl right there, or my son Daryl. Your son. <laughs> like like we have probably more in common genetically than you and Daryl have, right? Yeah, yeah If you true. really think I mean, about it. That's a good point when you, you think know? about it, for sure. And so, you know, the reason why I think we have such a 
problem with race now is we make such a big deal out mm -hmm. what is non-essential. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Um, uh, and it's been our history, and now mm -hmm. we have to sort of race has to become important because we right. have to work at yes. undoing all that exactly. crap. Exactly. We spent like 400 years making this egregious wrong, and now we're just starting to you know fix it back up. You know, so yeah. it's gonna take a long time. Yeah. But I believe in it. I believe in mm. it. <laughs> it's, it's people like you, Olivia, that you know give me hope. You oh, know? thank you. Um, give me the hope that there could be a way in which we could good in this world. Oh, I you know? appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank well, you for letting me be on your podcast. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I just kind of sat down, and so <laughs> uh, there, this was not planned. This is just happening, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah. You see how she said the word, uh, the words, I'm a writer. Yeah. Yeah, that was her first time. Was that right? Was yeah, that, that's what she said. Yeah. I, th I think there's something to be said about that, right? I think so, too. Like, when you, when you finally claim what you are after so long, because, you know, it's like, it's kind of scary to admit that you're a writer because it's like you spend all this time doing all this writing you put all these hours in but it's like when you finally put that label on it it becomes like official then it can it's look real. the pressures on yeah exactly yeah, yeah. so that's what and that r realness that reality brings with it a lot of greatness yeah and a lot of pressure too and a lot of expectations especially mm -hmm. like with being like a black writer or being a writer of color, it's like yes. once you once you put that label on yourself, it's like you're really stepping into uncharted territory mm -hmm. because it's like there aren't very many black writers or if there are, they're kind of like put into a box and like marginalized and put in this space where you can only write about these certain things mm -hmm. and you only reach a certain demographic and so it's it's hard, but I guess some people have to trailblaze, right? And so Yeah, exactly. What's it like for you being a, a Michigan student and being a writer yourself and, mm -hmm. and being in this program? What's that been like? Tell me about it, Daryl. It's been interesting. At Michigan State University in our creative writing program, it is not very many black people. It's not very many people that look like me in my classrooms. And so a lot of the things that I we, write we about. We were just, Olivia and I, we were just talking about that. Yeah. She, she didn't name it in the same ways you did. Oh, okay. Know? She said it's very traditional. It's very conservative. Oh, yeah, no, okay. it, it's very white. Yeah, um, yeah, yes, it's exactly. Very, it's very white. Um, <laughs> and it's hard because I write about a lot of a lot of issues relating to like race and things like that mm -hmm. and so a lot of the references and cultural references that I make in my work a lot of times in workshops they don't understand what I'm talking about and so sometimes it can be hard to get accurate feedback on your writing because it's like there's so much that they don't get but it's it's really funny because you're always expected to understand every aspect of like traditional white American culture and if I don't get something I have to look it up but if they don't get something, they want me to explain every every aspect of it to them. And it's like, you know, that's not mm. fair. And it, it, I feel like it does hinder my learning sometimes. But Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, because we're in this context where, where it's assumed uh, that 
that literature is sort of literature, but it's it's white literature. It yeah, is. You know? It is. And philosophy, we were talking about philosophy, you know, like because Olivia studies philosophy. We assume philosophy is all philosophy, but it's pretty much Western white philosophy, you know? Definitely. Yeah, and so there are a lot of assumptions there. And then when we cross into things where we talk about our experiences either you know, as an African American or as an Asian American, mm-hmm. it feels like we have to do a lot of explaining, you know, what these cultural references mean. Exactly. And we're sort of doing double work, mm-hmm. which we've been doing our entire lives. You know? <laughs> and it's hard too because a lot of times when when people only teach you one one way of, of learning, so like like if you at Michigan State the the curriculum and the canon is very it's very white and so you don't realize that you know there are people in africa there are people in asia people in india that do make very incredible works but they also tell stories very differently than we do sort of like in the western world and those means of storytelling are just as valid just as interesting and just as worthy of study and so but you would never think that if you kind of just stuck to the curriculum and to the pieces that they kind of taught you in class and so i feel like that actually does hinder not only me but everybody because you can learn so much from other cultures mm-hmm. and the way that they tell stories and the things that they value and stuff like that so yeah exactly because the more infused we are with the flavors of other cultures the more we can understand our own exactly in, in other words i i've been working on a script daryl uh a manuscript for about two years and mm-hmm. I'm in the second editing phase. It's a narrative nonfiction piece called Jesus of the East okay. and about Eastern visions of Jesus that are different than the Western dominant evangelical or Roman Catholic yeah. versions. Uh, but uh, I've learned so much from uh, my uh, African American sisters and brothers and talking about theology and the, 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 the black Christian tradition, the, the black theological tradition. Yeah. And so like my work is infused with the stories of African American uh, writers, filmmakers, uh, theologians, activists. And I found that because they have dealt with their history, their past, that gives me freedom to explore my history and my past yeah. also, you know, and it enriches it, you know, it doesn't bring it down in any way. But it seems like here in, in the West, especially in the United States, there's just so much fear of that. Definitely. You know? And I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's because, you know, once, I feel like once marginalized and oppressed groups of people kind of learn their history, and they learned that they kind of did hold very high positions of power historically and that they weren't sort of just like sitting dormant for so long Mm -hmm. until like a sort of like white savior came and helped them out then it's like you know once you realize that you you did have a long prominent history then it's like then you feel empowered then you want to get out and do something and make change and correct all of these all of these systems that have been perpetuated to hold you down for so long 
But then that's not what the people in the dominating group want because obviously they want to keep dominating. So yeah, yeah, exactly. They they don't want to shift in their power and their status, and they feel like somehow it's going to topple that yeah you know, that system for them. But really, you know, at the end of the day, if like all of us put down that fear, you know, especially those you know in the dominant class and culture, then yeah. we will see that. That it enriches everyone. You know, it, 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 it adds to and um, and it, it helps sort and and uplift. Because really, you know, when we talk about like the dominant culture and class, it's you know the support beams are all really fragile. The reason why it's so heavily protected is because it's fragile. Definitely, you know, right? Yeah. Because when you build something up off of off of tearing so many other people down, mm -hmm. it's like you know, all those angry and disgruntled people. Eventually, they will probably come together. And especially, I feel like if all of these different oppressed groups kind of like learn their history, mm -hmm. they will see that their histories kind of like intertwine a lot more than they think that they do, and that we actually have a lot more in common with one another than we think. And so, I don't know. Um, I don't really know what the future holds. Obviously, mm -hmm. but. I do think that it's very important for everyone to to learn more about themselves and to define themselves because if they don't define themselves and yeah. everybody else will be more than happy to define them you for them. them. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Man, it, just you speaking those words, Daryl, and you know, hearing Olivia's story and her testimony, it, it just gives me hope about like our future in general <laughs> yeah i hope so i mean i i am an african-american african studies minor so i study race mm -hmm. a lot too um and so i definitely think about this stuff a lot but just seeing the kind of like resurgence in this idea of like um political activism and, and stuff like that that's kind of ingrained in the minds of like everybody kind of like growing up now i do feel like the next generation is headed in a really cool direction Hopefully a very politically a politically active direction, but um, I don't know. I can't see the future though. But I hope. Yeah, and and I think one that can do a lot of good for everyone. You know, mm -hmm. uh, do a lot of good for those who are uh, disempowered, but to do good for you know all of us in in general. Yeah. You know, to, to contribute to the good of everyone. So. That's so awesome. Thank uh, you. I, I hope you so well. So, so Daryl uh, does a. Um, podcast from Michigan State. Uh, he's a student of African American Studies, student English, yep, creative uh, writing, creative writing, graphic designer as well. Oh, that do a lot. <laughs> yeah, and so like y'all who are listening, he's he's a feature. He's a feature. He uh. and people like <laughs> Olivia and those students there, uh, they're paving the way. So give them as much support as you can. Thank you so much. Jim. Yeah, I appreciate you for recording me. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Effing Shakespeare is brought to you on the backs of the harried, unpaid, and not quite starving artists that make up Bloomsday Literary, and also the good people at Houston Creative Space. Photography, video, and fine art. Find all things creative at Houston Creative Space. Guys, we have effing Shakespeare t-shirts. Effing shirts! Have you Marie Kondo the hell out of your closet and now all your t-shirts are car wash rags? If so, effing Shakespeare shirts will be sure to spark joy in your life for years to come.
More importantly, these shirts are produced by our friend Diego in Mexico City. You can read more about his story and how these t-shirts came to us and place an order on our website, bloomsdayliterary.com. It's like dogs, Pangea, David Bowie. What else? An aviation chin. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Seven, six. Commencing countdown engines on. Check ignition and may God's love be with you. 